Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's award-winning journal, AACN Advanced Critical Care, with information available at aacn.org forward slash ACC journal. Now here's your host, Connie Barden. everybody, this is Connie Barden today, and I'm really excited to get to talk with Charlie Borowitz. Charlie is Transgender Health Program Manager at Allegheny Health Network. So Charlie, welcome. I'm so glad you're here with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, Allegheny Health Network, and I'm guessing that's Pennsylvania? Is that is that where you're located? Yep. We are, are based, our headquarters is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We span most of Western Pennsylvania from Erie down to Cannonsburg on over to the uh, east a little bit. Oh, beautiful. Well, that's a pretty big job you've got there, and I can't wait to hear more about it. And um, for starters, I would say, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career path so far. You're a young person here, and um, you've done a whole lot of stuff in your career. So tell us a little bit the overview of your career so far. So I actually started in behavioral health. I have a bachelor's in psychology, started working in mental health field, doing crisis work, doing inpatient uh, social work or psychi- psychology work. Um, And then decided to go back for my master's. I decided to get two master's degrees because one was not punishment enough. Uh, One was in public health and one was in social work. So with those two combined, it was a very natural uh, transition, pun intended, to go into care for marginalized populations, specifically for the trans and non-binary community. Also, during the course of grad school, I myself came out as trans, so that led me in that direction as well of working with people with similar experiences who had been through similar things that I had. Sounds like you have the perfect role and perfect fit for the job that you're in, so I'm looking forward to you sharing with us more about what all that entails. So let me ask you, because we we all have a lot to learn on this topic, so for starters, When we talk about care of the transgender patient, who are we talking about? Who's a transgender patient? What what are things we should be thinking about around that? So the word transgender means anybody with what we call gender incongruence. So what that means is that you have one thing listed on your birth certificate. So that thing is either male or female based on a set of characteristics when you're born. And folks who are transgender or folks who have gender incongruence don't identify with that description. So I myself, I was assigned female at birth and through my whole life, female never felt right. Like it didn't feel like something that was true or authentic for me. It felt like a costume I was trying to put on and I was doing a really bad job of it. Yeah. And so my my whole life, it felt like this is this is not right and there's something wrong with me because of that. So later later on in life, I actually came out in my late 20s, um, but I had been thinking about my gender identity for a while before that. I just didn't know how to accurately describe my gender identity, which is non-binary. Um, I don't know if we're going to come back to this later. Oh, I got a whole slew of questions for you around terms. So yeah, we'll we'll come okay. back and at least get some of those for sure. All right. Um, so w- with the knowledge, we'll come back to that. 
Yeah. When we're talking about folks who are transgender, we're talking about anybody with gender incongruence. There's a lot of terms that somebody might use to self-identify, but generally speaking, we're talking about somebody whose gender identity, their sense of self, their core sense of who they are does not align with that male or female that's on their birth certificate. And so it just is common sense that any of us as nurses could bump into patients who are transgender. And so there's a whole lot of learning that we all have to do around this population of which you are a part. So it's just so great that you're here and willing to share your experiences today. Now, for a number of years, we've been talking and all trying to learn about LGBT community. But when we talk specifically about trans versus this global sort of umbrella term of LGBT, what are some distinctions and important differences that we need to know about that? That's a really good question. Um, so the main thing is that there are disparities in experience in terms of healthcare experiences. Folks in the broader LGBTQ plus population do still experience marginalization, discrimination in healthcare, being denied healthcare, and being verbally and physically abused. However, those rates, those percentages are higher for folks who are transgender or have gender incongruence. So the disparities are more stark. We also see that there are differences in understanding in terms of a lot of people understand what it means to be gay, what it means to be bisexual, you know, all of that. It's a little bit harder when you're challenging that traditional view of male and female. People tend to understand it a little bit less. Um, and I think they've done some studies on nurses where they show more understanding of sexual orientation, which is what we're talking about. Like, are you straight, gay, bi, whatever, um, versus gender identity, which is who you are. But sex and gender also seep into every single aspect of healthcare in a way that sexual orientation may not. So, for example, if somebody is listed on their birth certificate as male, but they identify as female, they've changed their ID, they've been um, taking hormones, all of that, their lab values may or may not be altered depending on what's going on with their current physiology. So that's just one small example of, it may not even be related to gender transition, it could be related to cardiology or whatever, uh, but sex and gender really do inform a lot of the way that we do medicine and we're going to talk more about this, I know, but that medical system is not a system that was built for or by transgender people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm just thinking in the simplest form, just looking at lab results. Most lab results are printed out male and female. And, yep. and uh, those are the norms against which we compare. So I'm just thinking there are a lot of variations on this theme here, because as you say, a trans person could be taking certain types of medications, hormones, et cetera. And the next trans person may not. And the next one may be taking even more than that. So it sounds like the willingness to have a compassionate conversation just about the what's so of this must be really important to get to a comfort level of saying, talk to me. You know, this is a safe space. Let's talk about what's going on here. Yeah. And you captured one of the biggest challenges is that no two people's transition looks the same. So my transition looks different than some of my trans friends or some of my trans patients. No two people have the exact same journey. 
And a lot of times it's that conversation where we find out that information. It's what does being trans mean for you? What does gender dysphoria mean for you? What does gender affirming treatment mean for you? And that answer could be different depending on who you're talking to, but it creates a lot of nuance and it creates a lot of challenge for uh, for a field that likes to do things very black and white, very much like this is this number and at this cutoff, it's too much and at this cutoff, it's too little. It's very difficult to work within those gray areas. Yeah, I totally get that. Uh, I think we'll circle back to some more of that. But we mentioned a second ago about terms. There are a lot of terms yeah. oh. around this that, you know, can just sort of make your head explode. So so you mentioned earlier about non-binary. Um, we hear the term gender affirming care. We hear this term trans health care. We hear gender expansive care and on and on and on. Are there any of those that you think are particularly important that we gather around today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, gender diverse is a big one or gender expansive. Those two are used interchangeably. And those are both used to capture the breadth of gender identity. Our old view of what gender looked like is this uh, concept that we call the gender binary, where there are men and there are women and everybody is one or the other. So the old view of transition was you go from being one to being the other, like full stop. You go from one box to the other box and you're completely in either one of those. And for a lot of people, that's still the case. That's absolutely still some people's experience. But when I bring up non-binary, what that means is that my experience as a trans person is not on that binary. So I was assigned into that female box, which didn't fit. And my identity is more of a blend of male and female. So for me, non-binary means it's a blend of male and female. For some people, non-binary is something in between male and female or a third gender. Um, that's also an umbrella term. That's another thing we run into a lot of times is some of these terms are umbrella terms. But generally speaking, non-binary is a gender separate from male and female that can be a blend of both. You know, what you're making me think about here is a conversation we're having everywhere nowadays having to do with pronouns. So my yep. pronouns are she and her. And you and I talked previously and you shared that your preferred pronouns are they and them. So mm -hmm. how does the whole pronoun conversation fit into what you were just talking about? Great question. So that is a way to for people to indicate what their gender identity is. So you saying that your pronouns are she and her would indicate to me that you identify as a female person. Whereas I saying my pronouns are they and them would indicate me as a non-binary person. Um, so pronouns are a really important part of transition. It's really, as far as healthcare goes, one of the lowest hanging fruits as far as what we can do to be affirming and welcoming to somebody, but using somebody's pronouns, their proper pronouns is really critical towards building that good relationship. So it is directly related. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about gender affirming care, because that's a term that we use a lot. Um, I have a dear friend who is transgender, and he used to say to me, when I was born, I would look in the mirror as a child and know that I did not belong in that body. And thank goodness, mm. 
had very supportive parents and so forth and transition is a super happy person now. But they are the ones who taught me about how super important this is. Imagine seeing oneself in the mirror and not thinking that that was a fit, that that was a disconnect. Like when when he was asked to wear dresses and those kinds of things, and it just, just really made him crazy. So I imagine respectful use of pronouns and what we talk about with gender affirming care has to do with that. But is there anything else to tell us about this concept of gender affirming care? Oh, absolutely. We can talk about that for a while. So gender affirming care is another thing that can refer to a couple different things. But generally speaking, it's healthcare that is welcoming and understanding of gender identity. So it's welcoming to trans folks. It's welcoming to people who are gender in, have gender incongruence. Um, and sometimes it's going to refer to the care that is specific to transition. Um, so most of the time when we talk about gender affirming care, we're talking about things like gender affirming hormone therapy. We're talking about surgery. We're talking about uh, mental health therapy that's specifically related to transition related issues. But that's not the only care that trans people need because trans people have we have bodies, we have minds, we have eyes and teeth and, you know, all of those other things that yeah, people need right. care for. Strokes <laughs> and heart attacks, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so there's so much more that goes into it that there might be some things that you need to know specific to my gender identity. But at the end of the day, I just need a doctor who's not going to treat me poorly because of who I am. And when I talk about gender affirming care, I talk about it across the whole spectrum of healthcare. So you know, essentially from cradle to grave, as much as we can support somebody at any stage in their life for any health condition, while still upholding those values of, I'm going to respect you for your gender identity, use your correct pronouns, use your correct name, all of that different stuff. Yeah. I mean, that is a fundamental part of the code of ethics of nursing, isn't it? To be uh, respectful of all people, of all humans. Charlie, we've been talking about these terms, um, including uh, gender affirming care. I imagine there's some misconceptions around gender-affirming care. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Or you're laughing. I imagine that's a yes. There are some misconceptions. Because my initial thought is how much time do we have to talk about misconceptions? (laughs) Right. Um, One of the first ones that comes to mind is the idea that any intervention for gender is optional, it's cosmetic, and it's not medically necessary, which is just not the case. the interventions that people are getting are absolutely medically necessary. It's been acknowledged as such by the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Nurses Association, like all of the major medical associations groups recognize that it is medically necessary. Um, The other one that comes from a long history of association with the DSM and with behavioral health is that being trans is a mental illness, which it is not. Trans people can have depression, can have anxiety, can have schizophrenia, can have any number of mental health conditions in addition to experiencing gender dysphoria. That does not mean that being trans is a mental illness. Because we need a diagnosis to get care, a lot of times that gets conflated. And I think that's one of the biggest things is that people think, oh, you need treatment for this mental disorder. Whereas I'm like, no, I need treatment so that my identity is validated so that 
I don't have that experience that we talked about where I look in the mirror and I, I can't stand what I see. Another one is that um, I'm going to, I'm going to end with the big one actually, but another one I hear a lot is that people will regret transition. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not nearly as much of a thing as people like to think. It's like a fraction of a percent of people who get gender affirming surgery of any kind regret that surgery. And often when you dig into that and you see, you ask people, why do you regret your surgery? A lot of times the reason isn't because I'm not really trans. The reason is my surgeon was inept. My body didn't respond the way I wanted it to. My wounds didn't heal properly. It doesn't look the way that I was told it would. You know, I'm in hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt because my insurance didn't cover it. You know, any number of things can contribute to regret. And that's not a reason to deny care for people who aren't going to regret it, who do have all of those things in place. And again, for an overwhelming majority, like over 99% of people, transition is a positive thing for their overall well-being. And the big one that I wanted to end on is the idea that pediatric providers are doing surgery on minors. I don't know any surgeon who will operate on somebody under 18, let alone, and that's even just for like some of our quote unquote smaller surgeries, some of our, but um, the people who are saying that surgeons are doing what they call like quote unquote sex change operations on minors, they're talking about genital gender affirming surgery, genital reconstructive surgery. That's not happening. And I don't know where that idea came from. Um, pediatric gender affirming care is very ethical. It is done with the agreement of the patient and the parent and a therapist and a pediatrician and, you know, sometimes an endocrinologist or, you know, a family caseworker. Like there are so many people involved to make sure that that is the right choice for that child, including the child themselves, that that's just not an area where those unethical practices are happening in terms of gender transition. Wow. That was a super answer. And sounds like everything else where misconceptions are involved is usually the root is misinformation that leads to the misconceptions. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that. Absolutely. Let me ask you about any uh, unique challenges. It seems like a silly question, but I guess educate us on some of the unique challenges um, in healthcare for the trans population. What are some of the ones that come to mind for you most? Yeah, uh, I know I mentioned this already, but the system, the healthcare system that we have right now is very much designed for people who are cisgender, which just means people who are not transgender. Um, It's designed for people whose body parts and uh, mental sense of self reflects what is on their birth certificate or on their legal ID. So a lot of times trans people are put into the position of having to educate their provider and having to say, this needs to be different and here's why. Here's how this impacts myself and people like me. So not only having to challenge that system that's been in place for centuries, but also having to educate just about every single person that you see. So you'll hear stories from trans folks, myself included, where we'll go into a clinic and the person at the front desk I need to explain my name and my pronouns to that person. And then I go sit down 
And the person who calls me back for my appointment uses the wrong name and I have to correct that person. And then the nurse that comes in to take my blood pressure, I have to correct that person on my name. And then I still have to explain it to my doctor and then get to the reason why I'm there. So that's a really big thing that will keep people away from healthcare is just the mental strain of all of that. Because sometimes if I'm having a a medical issue, I just don't feel like sitting there and explaining my whole human experience. And so let me ask you, Charlie, just to be sure, when you say like the name thing as an example, you have some mm-hmm. name parts that are feminine in association. Is that what you mean? Or what's, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I don't anymore. I've had my name legally changed for yeah. a couple of years now. But in the past, yeah, I had a, an old name. Right. And that was the name that was on my birth certificate that, again, same thing. It never felt right. It didn't feel like me. It was very feminine. It just didn't suit me. And yeah, for the longest time, that was my legal name because I just didn't change it until recently. And of course, in healthcare, when you're working with like medical billing and insurance and all of that, you have to have your legal name so that they can identify you as the correct patient and match your date of birth and all of that. Um, But it was really distressing having to hear that name, having to see that name, having to use that name, you know, when I'm, whenever I'm talking to somebody about healthcare or calling for an appointment or requesting records or any of those things. You know, I'll tell you like a, a miniature dose of what I'm thinking about related to that. So I go by Connie, but that's a nickname mm-hmm. for my real middle name, which happens to be Cornelia. Can you imagine? <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Southern belle, right? But you if, don't look like a Cornelia. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> But if someone ever, so nowhere to your point in the legal system, does Connie show up because it's a nickname. And so whenever I go into legal related things or healthcare offices and so forth, and they call me by my full on legal name, what that says to Mm -hmm. me is, oh, this is somebody who doesn't really know me. And so I'm not dealing with trans issues and that kind of thing. This is purely just a name thing, but always it says to me, now I do also have doctor's offices where you can tell they've written it on the top of the chart, call her Connie. But imagine if, yeah, yeah. So it's great. And that's just a very lightweight example. But imagine if that incorrect naming was fundamental to my whole identity, which is what you're saying. That if we're calling someone Susan and they prefer to be called, in your case, Charlie or, you know, Michael, then it just is a total disconnect. And it almost can feel disrespectful. Absolutely can feel disrespectful. Not even almost. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. You know, um, this series is uh, we call this a leadership uh, podcast series. And so we often like to look at what are things that leaders can do around whatever topic we're talking about. So when you look at there's big thing called trans healthcare and so many places in the system where we intersect with people in the trans community, can you think of things that leaders can do to help um, improve awareness and uh, the uh, care of transgender patients? Definitely. Yeah. So as I said, you know, the, one of the biggest things is using those correct names and pronouns. So asking every person, Hey, what do you want me to call you? Because in your case, whatever's on your ID wouldn't be Connie. 
but that's going to make you feel a lot more respected in a healthcare encounter if somebody takes that extra 10 seconds to get to know you well enough to say, what name are you going to respond to? Right. You know, if we need to get your attention quickly, if we're talking to you about, you know, healthcare is really intimate. It's very private. And if you're talking to somebody with this weird formality of a name that they don't even connect to, they're not going to open up to you. You're not going to get those answers you need. You're not going to get that trust, that rapport. So setting that example, especially for nurse leaders or people who are aspiring nurse leaders, by taking the lead on that and saying, on my unit, on my shift, we are going to use this name and these pronouns. I'm going to give proper report. I'm going to ask the questions to figure out how to get this in the chart properly, which is actually a big thing of what I do at my health system is I help people with making sure their charts are up to date. And then I go around and do trainings to any different department, a lot of which are nurses, uh, to make sure that folks know how to interact with trans folks. And there's more to it than just, you know, the name and pronouns, but that's a really big step. The next one is educating yourself and figuring out how to ask those questions. So even just knowing a little bit about what causes distress or dysphoria for somebody is really helpful towards getting to know them and getting to uh, treat them in a way that is going to be aligned with their gender identity. So nurse leaders can really set the example for their staff. They can set the bar for how to educate yourself. There's tons and tons of resources out there. You know, this this podcast and a couple of the articles that we that we had talked about beforehand are a really good place to start. And just being curious about what you don't know about can really go a long way towards learning about it. You know, you had mentioned there's so much terminology and terminology can be really confusing. It can make it feel really inaccessible for a lot of people. But even just knowing how to ask those questions of, you know, say that I'm a patient and I say I'm non-binary. If my nurse comes to me and is like, I've never heard that term before. Can you tell me a little more about that? And then that opens me up to say, okay, this is my identity. This is what this means. And yeah, if I'm having like shortness of breath, I'm not going to want to have that conversation in the moment. But if I'm admitted to a unit and like going to be spending some time with this person, I'm going to really appreciate the opportunity to bring that person in. And then they can say, okay, let me write that down. I'm going to give that a a quick Google search or I'm going to look that up on up to date or whatever. And really start to to be curious about those things and learn more as you go. You're also just never going to be done learning about anything, but especially as the trans community grows and evolves and a lot of our language is growing and evolving as well. So taking the time to really get into that and that's really helpful. I like that quote. You're never going to be done learning about most anything. I think I think that's really yeah. true. Let me ask you, Charlie, um, you know, people can have really strong opinions, personal beliefs about a whole bunch of stuff. And we certainly see that show up around trans healthcare. You have any tips for folks in navigating um, these kinds of challenges, difficult conversations, whether you want to give tips for nurses or uh, community members themselves or, you know, where do you want to go with that? Um, the way that I approach this, as I said, I, I do a lot of trainings. I train thousands of employees a year at Allegheny Health Network. And what I always want people to know is that they can always ask questions as long as they're being respectful. 
that creates that open forum for people to say, I don't understand this. This is not my lived experience. Can you explain this to me? Or what do I need to do for my job? There's also a big difference between somebody asking a question that's using outdated terminology and somebody who's saying something that's deliberately hurtful. Obviously, I can tell the difference between that. And I'm not going to jump down somebody's throat about using the wrong terminology unless it's, you know, hate speech. That's going to be a little bit different of a conversation. Um, I also don't try to change anybody's mind. People are going to feel the way they're going to feel about gender and about the gender binary and trans people in general. Um, I know what my lived experience is. I know who I am and what I am and all of that. And nobody else gets to tell me what my lived experience is and whether or not that's legitimate because they haven't lived it. So asking people to just be respectful is usually the way I go about that. And, you know, coming away from it, knowing we don't have to agree I'm not going to adopt beliefs that discount my identity and you're not going to adopt my beliefs about gender because it's not your lived experience. Um, But I also like to challenge people to examine those beliefs and why they're so firmly held. Because a lot of times if something's not affecting you, it's not part of your lived experience and you have that strong reaction, that's an indicator that there's some implicit bias at work. And that's a really good thing to explore as a healthcare provider, um, remembering your role as a nurse and your role as a healthcare provider and caring for everybody, regardless of whether or not you agree with them, is really, really critical. The other thing I'll say about that is that I am super, super open to questions, but not every person is. Yeah. And especially when we're working with people that are in a healthcare setting, people aren't coming into the emergency department so that they can give a lecture on gender affirming care. Right. Except for me, <laughs> like I made a career yeah. out of that, but You're not everybody did. Right, right, exactly. Um, so a lot of times, yeah, if somebody is going through something that's you know medical in nature, that's not going to be the time where they're going to want to answer all of people's questions about gender and about you know their uh, hormones or their body parts or things that aren't relevant to the actual reason they're there. So I think learning where that discretion comes in too. Um, my question for folks is always, you know, do you need this information right now? Is it clinically relevant? Is it clinically appropriate to be talking about it? If so, great. If you are working with a patient and that they're the only trans person you've ever interacted with that you know of, because, you know, spoiler alert, you've already interacted with lots of trans people. I guarantee it. Um, you just didn't know it. <laughs> So if somebody is really open to answering questions, then, you know, take that opportunity to ask, um, but also don't assume that everybody wants to be that educator. Uh, Sometimes people feel like a teaching case and that can feel really uncomfortable too. But, you know, finding somebody that's in an educational role, um, the Fenway Institute has, you know, hours and hours and hours of webinars that you can take on this topic in any iteration you can think of. You know, you can think about the intersection of race and gender, the intersection of obesity and gender, like any amount of different topics are available. It's just, you got to know where to look. Yeah, really sage advice. You know, I want to circle back before we leave this thing about 
sometimes these are difficult topics. People have strong opinions, religious beliefs, and other kinds of beliefs that are foundational. Um, and we see this all throughout many things, particularly the LGBT community, of which I am a member, by the way. And so I'm familiar with a lot of that and have been subjected to it myself. What I've found in that a lot of times is what people find when they take time to pause and reflect is what undermines this the most sometimes is just fear. Fear of someone they don't know, fear of something they don't know. I can imagine for a nurse taking care of a trans person, like, I don't know how to do this. I don't Mm -hmm. understand hormones. I don't know what this means and so forth. So what have you found um, I guess I'd say specific to the trans community around that. Do you see a lot of fear related to trans folks? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the way that we are raised, at least in our culture here, is very much that binary view of men and women. And that's that's fundamental to a lot of people. And I do wonder sometimes if people think that trans people are trying to deny the existence of cisgender men and cisgender women, or if the, if people think that we're, we're turning everybody trans, it's like, no, we're actually just allowing people who are actually trans to come out and live full authentic lives and be themselves. Um, as far as the religious aspect goes, it's a really complicated question because Absolutely. as you know, and, and thank you for, for sharing that, sharing your identity with me. Um, it's so complicated because there are some people who, you know, are very, uh, invested in their religious beliefs and are also champions for change and inclusion and other people who I will say, use that as a shield for their own bias and fear, because I don't think the religion in and of itself says, Hey, you should hate this group of people. And there's, you know, there's nothing in the Bible about trans people. There's there's nothing in religious texts about trans people. Um, what what I usually see is that people hold those negative beliefs, and then that's their reason that they give when really it's coming from bias. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would say, and also fear, fear of the unknown. Yeah. Some, someone that yeah. feels, sounds, looks might be different from us, and it's scary. Absolutely. Absolutely scary. Definitely. Well, listen, while we're talking about hot button issues, let's keep going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, keep you know, going. Well, one of the big issues in our country right now has to do with this intersection of legislation and health care. Sometimes that impacts mm. access to health care in many cases. Around this topic, how do you recommend nurses educate themselves on issues like this when when it really could impact the well-being of a certain population. In this instance, we're talking about the trans population. Um, and if you have any examples of how legislated um, policy or policy could impact the actual health care of trans people, we'd love to learn about that. Absolutely. The biggest thing is to know the laws in your state, because a lot of the legislation that's taking place is happening at the state level. So it's happening for state Medicaid or state insurance coverage. In some cases, it uh, there's legislation that is trying to ban any type of gender affirming care, and that would be care specific to transition. So that would be things like hormones and surgeries specifically related to being a transgender person. Um, There are some states where that 
has passed. There are some states where that's being challenged in higher courts. Fewer states tend to have explicit protections where that cannot happen. So a lot of bills have been introduced this year alone that are trying to limit care specific to gender affirmation. As far as educating educating yourself, there are a lot of websites that are tracking this right now. I think the last webinar that I went to said that there are over 700 anti-LGBT laws that have been introduced at the state level just in 2023. It's July. Um, it's, it's, that's a lot for yeah. not even a full year. Um, and not all of those are related to healthcare, but a lot of them are directed at gender affirming healthcare. Um, so knowing what's going on in your state, you know, I'm fortunate in Pennsylvania that, you know, knock on wood, there's nothing yet, but in other states that those have really come down. Um, as far as an example, so a lot of these focus on youth and youth access to care, that's coming from that fear like we talked about and some misconceptions that people have about gender-affirming care for youth um, because the laws are just outright denying gender-affirming care for youth, which can be really dangerous. So it's been shown time and time again that providing good gender-affirming care, allowing youth to live their authentic lives and be their true selves can reduce their risk of suicide and drug use and depression and all of these other things that, you know, can negatively impact or end a life. So it's, it's not a neutral thing that's happening. Yeah, I, I think it is true that the um, self-destructive behavior and suicide attempts and completions are the highest in the trans community. If you look at the LGBT community as a whole, the highest numbers are in the trans community. Is that correct? Yes. It's uh, 41% of trans adults will have attempted suicide in their lifetime and 45% of trans adolescents. It's directly related to acceptance, to dysphoria. Um, dysphoria is that distress that happens when you can't get the care that you need. Um, it's related to you know bullying and abuse, which are both higher for trans and gender diverse kids. and you're right that they're high among all LGBTQ kids, but especially among kids who are gender diverse. I just want to say that again. So I'll uh, paraphrase what you said. In general, between 41 and 45 percent of trans people have report that they have considered or attempted suicide. 41 to 45 percent. That is to stark. compare that. Yeah, among the general population, the numbers that I've I've seen, and don't quote me on this, I'm not a, an expert on suicidality, right. um, but the numbers that I've seen in my general research have been between one and three percent for the general population. So that yeah. kind of puts it in perspective of of how different it is. So when you talk about bias and prejudice being dangerous, this can be this can have a really literal impact. That is, in terms of a young person taking their own life as a result. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's let's come back from those bleak statistics as we wrap up here, Charlie, because uh, it's really fascinating learning from you. I like to finish on a positive note. And so if you think yeah. about this whole thing, your whole work that you do now in your career and everything that you know in the trans community, what gives you hope? What makes you look towards a brighter future when you consider trans health care? I have been so privileged to work with so many people who are interested in transforming the system 
and making this a welcoming and equitable place for everyone. I mean, when I'm talking about doing trainings, a lot of those take place in rural Pennsylvania. And 98% of the people I talk to are affirming and welcoming and happy for the information. They're hungry for the information because they are seeing trans people come into their clinics. And the number one thing I get that gets said to me is, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And even just having that be the response instead of something negative, it, it's opening that door. So I'm seeing huge changes pretty quickly, honestly, that, you know, vocabulary is hard to keep up with, you know, different identities are hard to keep up with. And especially if you've, you know, been a nurse for 20 or 30 years, and now this feels like a new change that's coming into your world, for people to be open to that is really inspiring. And it makes me really happy. I've also seen a lot of younger people who are getting into healthcare, specifically in this space, to try and change it, to be those faces, to be those people who can welcome others. Knowing other trans and non-binary people who are getting into healthcare just because that's their passion and that's what they want to do is so different from how it was just even a couple decades ago where people didn't feel welcomed in these spaces. So I think healthcare is is changing at a rapid pace and that that keeps me going. That's a great and hopeful message. Wow. You know, uh, one of the things you said early on, Charlie, is we're never done learning on any topic. And I totally agree. And and I'm not done learning from you, but <laughs> we do we do have to wrap up. I think if I wanted to say the top handful of things that you've taught me or reminded me is that this issue of trans healthcare impacts every aspect of healthcare. Indeed, the implications are immense. There are disparities in healthcare, particularly with the trans population. And it's good for us to remember that no two transitions are alike. So if we've taken care of one or two or 10 patients who are in transition, it doesn't mean the next one or two or 10 will be exactly the same. But gender affirming care has a great formula, which is it is welcoming care. It has to do with respectful care. It has to do with talking with people about pronouns and names and educating oneself. So there's there's hope in terms of simple things we can do to really begin to provide gender affirming care. And there's roles for all of us, I think, to get better. I uh, am so grateful, Charlie, for you spending time today. But the one word that hasn't come up that I'm going to use related to you oh. <laughs> is courage. Because Thank for you. you to come here and be out and honest and open with us so that people can learn from you as a member of the trans community and a member of the healthcare community is a gift to all of us. So Charlie Borowitz, it's been an honor to talk with you today. And uh, I hope we get to chat again soon. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. And I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN's award-winning journal, AACN Advanced Critical Care, with information available at aacn.org forward slash ACC journal. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.